0: How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy and education is needed to making the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment and our economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry into a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Energy, and this is the Voices of Energy. Dr. Emily Reigert serves as the CEO of Greentown Labs, the largest climate tech incubator in North America. As the organization's first employee, Emily spearheaded the rapid growth of Greentown Labs, incubating hundreds of climate focused startups that have created thousands of jobs and attracted partners from around the world. Today, Greentown Labs has grown to 35 employees, managing a community of nearly 100 startups and 100,000 square feet of space, headquartered in Somerville, Massachusetts, with a second location currently in development and about to launch in Houston, Texas. We at Ally Energy are very proud to be a member of the Greentown Labs of Houston, which is launching on Earth Day this year. Emily started her career at Arthur D. Lodl as a PhD scientist and progressed into R&D, business development, and general management roles. Prior to Greentown, she was the Director of Business Operations at the Warner Bobcack Institute for Green Chemistry, very cool where she helped grow the angel-funded startup into a sustainable contract R&D business with a mission to minimize environmental impact. She holds a PhD in chemistry, physical chemistry, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and earned her MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. Welcome, Emily, to the podcast. Thanks so much, Katie. So glad to be here. Really excited about having this conversation just before Earth Day, on the heels of this amazing launch in the energy capital of the world. Just today it was downtown, and things were a buzz. We were all talking about the innovation district that's being built, and so I'm so glad that we get a chance to connect here with you. So before we get into the thick of it, we always like to do a rapid fire round. So we're going to start with our rapid fire round. Are you ready? I am ready. Sweet. Okay. Morning or night person? Oh, so a night person, night owl. Really? So you don't get up too
1: early? I would prefer not to get up too early. Okay. I would prefer to stay up as late as possible. I think my hours of greatest productivity are like five to 7 PM and onward.
0: Wow. That's when I'm like falling asleep. And last night, I think you and I were messaging pretty late. So... <laughs> yes, exactly. That was my prime time. <laughs> you are a night owl. Okay. Favorite place you've traveled? Greenland. Oh, very nice. Favorite or most recent
1: book you've read? Most fabulous book I've read in a long time is Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And it, it really tracks the great migration uh, that happened in the United States over really the middle of this past century. It's uh, just a fantastic book. Great storytelling,
0: but also just an amazing story. Excellent. Okay, this is a good one. What new hobby have you picked up during the pandemic? So last March,
1: my husband and I, in the early days of the pandemic, decided that the way that we could get out of our house was to cycle all over massachusetts so we got out our bikes and every weekend pretty much from april through i'd say october because after that it gets too cold for me we went somewhere in western massachusetts and just cycled for some of the rides were 20 miles some were 30 miles i think we did a 40 mile ride and just really glad to be in such a beautiful part of the world part of the country if you have to be quarantined somewhere, Massachusetts, not a bad
0: place to be quarantined uh, for the outdoors. Wow. Great. OK. Person you would most like to meet? Kamala Harris. Awesome. Yes. I think I would second that one. That'd be pretty cool. All right. So let's get into you and let's talk a little bit about your early history and then we can get into the thick of it around Greentown. So you've had a STEM and sustainability focus from very early on in your career. When did you realize this was a field you really wanted to be in? Honestly,
1: I had a dad who was a medical doctor, and he told me, if you go into science or engineering, you always have a job. And that's really, you know, was my original direction. That's what my dad told me to do. He didn't really say what part of science and engineering to go into. And so I started on the track of being an pre-med that, you know, someone interested in doing medical school and then quickly discovered I really wasn't into biology at all. I didn't like memorizing frog parts, really didn't like pain in other people. So I then uh, really found chemistry through the small college that I went to, which was University of Redlands, because it was team taught in a way that you just got this amazing access to all these faculty members who were part of different aspects of chemistry. And I love the, I don't know how you'd say it, the exactness of which you can solve problems in chemistry versus I felt in biology, it was kind of like this blob ate that blob and that wasn't my thing. So I started out a pre-med and went towards chemistry, had an amazing chemistry professor, um, which I think you're going to ask me about later, the woman mentor I most admire. So I'll save the story for then. But she asked me if I had ever thought about going to graduate school in chemistry because I was good at it. And of course, no, because no one in my family had done that. And uh, she helped me get a couple of summer research fellowships that then paved the way for me to be in a PhD program in chemistry. And uh, yeah, it all started from there. So I guess
0: my dad and my organic chemistry professor were key in that pathway. Yeah. It's funny listening to you talk about your father. So my father actually was in the oil and gas industry and an engineer who lost his job in the eighties. And he told me exactly the opposite. Do not get into this business, become a lawyer or a fisherman. (laughs) Because at the time, the seafood industry and bankruptcies were popular in New Orleans. So I actually didn't get into science, technology, engineering, or math. I got into journalism and that somehow landed me here. So uh, anyway, no, that's very interesting. Fathers having, uh, you know, an active role in their daughters and, you know, being able to help them path. So my dad
1: was, uh, I think it's interesting. A a father was telling a daughter that, you know that that, that I was the oldest kid and my dad was one of those people and he's, he is still one of those people. I should say he's alive and well in Arizona. Thank goodness. My dad was one of these people that didn't say much, but when he did say something, you really listened. And right, so I have right. these, like these various points in my life when I can remember back to, that's what my dad told me. Right. And this one of those moments that kind of set my career on its track.
0: Awesome. Well, so speaking of catalysts for things, um, what was the catalyst behind starting, you know, Greentown and that made you realize a company like this could be so successful? I mean, it's exciting to see Greentown come to Houston, but what was kind of the drive behind it? Well, I have
1: to set the record a little bit straight, and I am actually not a founder of Greentown Labs. I came in about a year and a half into this organization that really was founded by a group of entrepreneurs that had graduated from local universities and needed to continue to work on their companies and build prototypes that were, you know, frankly required noise and dirt and a place to actually build stuff. And they started out in a warehouse in East Cambridge that was near MIT and then uh, took a chance on a two-year lease in South Boston renting this kind of old, decrepit factory building. And this community, it turned out that there was a real need for this office space that wasn't office space. It was a place where you could bend metal, get dirty and make noise. And so this community started to grow because there were more of these startups that had this need. And it really started being clean tech focused and kept being clean tech and energy focused over time. Oh, and I came in, I Really, I was at my MBA program at MIT Sloan and I was looking to join or start a clean tech startup. That was my objective. And someone said, Hey, there's a whole basement full of them in South Boston. Why don't you go check it out? And I figured, well, okay, I'll do that. And maybe I'll meet one of them and maybe join a founding team or, you know, help one of them do something. And you know, I walked into the place the first time. And you had to go down these two flights of stairs into this old, like brick and beam factory building from probably the end of the last last century or maybe early 1900s. And this, you walked into this place. It was underground. It was this big open floor and very high ceilings because it was kind of a manufacturing bay. The floor was plywood. Ventilation was opening the garage door. You know, it was just as rough as you can imagine. But there were all these little companies that were spread out on the floor that you could see, and people just working away on developing their prototypes. And there was just kind of a, you know, no pun intended, just an energy in the air, like a buzz that I have to say, you know, except for the pandemic, we have kept going uh, to this day at Greentown Labs. So I felt like there was something very special there about this community, like the first time I walked in. My second one reaction was, you know, I had spent the last 10 years in corporate America in chemistry labs. And my, so my second impression was like, oh my God, this place is a death trap. You know, there'd be like no possible way this would survive any kind of inspection of any kind. And as it turned out, the space wasn't even really properly permitted. Uh, <laughs> we found that out at some point when we tried to get an alcohol permit for an event but whatever, you know, water under the bridge. The point was that there was a lot of potential there. There was a community of entrepreneurs that were kind of feeding off each other in a positive way, supporting one another. And later I learned that they would help each other write grants, they would loan equipment to each other, even interns to each other, and that made all of their companies stronger. And so there was the feeling of the buzz, but there was a, you know, this could be maybe so much more, it could be something that you know grows beyond this original set of founders. Which by the time I came in, by the way, they started with four and they had fifteen little companies there. And it just so happened that the original four founders uh, who had been running it, you know, were really at the point where I think it was becoming too much for you know the collection of rent every month uh, because that was kind of how it was done. It was all on a spreadsheet, <laughs> and so you know, they were looking for someone to help them with something. And I think what they originally thought they needed was an intern. And, you know, I came in and maybe saw that, you know, for my career, I could do not only helping one of those companies, but helping all of them through this organization, which was calling itself Greentown Labs. And, you know, I just finished this MBA program. My husband and like was like, Well, you know, if you're ever going to do something entrepreneurial, this is probably the moment to do it when you're finishing this program. And so thank goodness he was gainfully employed the entire time. Yay. Because the first year and a half, there was no salary for me in doing this endeavor. But I decided to take it on and worked with these entrepreneurs in building this organization. At first, it was all kind of me and them. And then we built a team over time. And uh, today, as you said, in your intro, we're 35 people. Uh, 100,000 square feet under management in Somerville, Massachusetts, and opening 40,000 square feet in Houston. We currently support over 100 young companies, and we have supported more than 300 to date. And these companies as well you know, have raised $1.2 billion in capital. And we do not invest in them or fund them ourselves. It is very much a Place where we stay mission oriented in helping the entrepreneurs. That's where we came from. We came from community. We came from supporting the entrepreneurs and helping them to support one another. And we keep that as really a part of our DNA. So the entire team has really been built around that mission based orientation. And we can connect them with investors. We can connect them with partners. We can connect them with manufacturers. We can connect them with each other. And that's exactly what we do to help them
0: be move forward faster. That's uh, really the name of the game for us. Awesome. Well, you know, I have to tell you, I'm curious. I mean, obviously we're, we were accepted and we were very super, we're just super stoked. I mean, listening, you talk about really what matters to us and that's culture and community. And it's amazing when you can throw, you know, some white minds in the room, but they're also so diverse that they can, you know, create this thing that, you know, grows and it grows and grows into something else. But I'm curious, so folks out there understand how it works, what kind of criteria do you look for when bringing in, you know, new startups and how do you support these entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a great question, Katie. And so glad to have you as part of our community in Houston. We're stoked. I mean, I've Very like exciting. I told, you, I told you last night I was like, I have felt like every place I've gone to in Houston is like bro town. I mean, I I call them Bro town. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be lots of bros. Okay. Because I did walk right. the facility two weeks ago and it was interesting because it was, you know, it's this old parking or this old uh this old grocery store, right? But I mean. I, you have to go somewhere where you feel like you fit in with people, right? You got to feel like you're welcome and the female founders program you have. Anyway, I won't steal your thunder, but tell folks out there, what do you look for when bringing um, a new startup, you know, in to the program and then how do you support them? Absolutely. Well, I think um, just to to say a
1: little bit more about the context of the type of company that we support so really from our founding, um, as I mentioned, we have supported entrepreneurs. And so we are very specifically creating a community of entrepreneurs that can support one another and that we can help uh, bring together in order to facilitate that. So I want to differentiate what we do at Greentown from, say, you know, where you might go to a co-working space. Like, we work, you know, it's not for us just about you rent space from us, it's very much you are joining a community of entrepreneurs who are like minded and doing hard things just like you are. And so, we actually have a pretty rigorous application process, it really starts at some level with the industry fit. We are looking for companies that are in the climate tech space, and we define that pretty broadly. Uh, in terms of both mitigation of greenhouse gases, but also in terms of resilience of people and of infrastructure. And so Katie, we'd put you in that resilience category of how do we build the next generation of employees and people that can help us build and drive the energy transition forward. Um, so that that resilience is a very important part of how we think about climate tech. So the other pieces once you get through that filter one is really community fit Um, we're looking for people that can both say give and take from a community so we don't really want any companies with us that are going to go into a lab and disappear and never come out you know you can do that anywhere at greentown you should really be willing and able to engage with the community sometimes we're going to ask you to give back probably at the beginning you're going to take more than you give and then ultimately you're going to give back more than you take. And that is very much part of the growth and development process of any company, but you have to be open to it. Um, The other thing is stage fit. So we can help companies that are typically have raised a little bit of capital. Uh, Most of the time it would be from an outside source, say a little bit beyond friends and family. So typically that might be seed funding, angel funding, uh, sometimes early venture capital funding, grants sometimes competition uh, wins, all of those are validators that help us with our process of ensuring that this is a company that then is going to have the capability to continue to grow. But our resources and services are really built for this seed to series A uh, type of company. And so that is really how we curate the community to be all in that stage. And then finally, there's a bit of a technical gut check, I'd say. So we we look at, for the kind of hard tech type companies that we mainly support, we are trying to get a sense of not only the science and technology piece of it, but also is there really a market out there? And we do that through a lot of um, knowledge that is stored in the minds of investors who are on our board of directors and every applicant goes through a process which is first a community in person in normal times type of interview. And then the second round is really a review by our board of directors. And that is how one gets into Greentown Labs. Say the final thing we think about is conflicts. So occasionally we'll have two companies that are doing very similar things. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes we need to either put them in separate locations or we'll even check with the existing company that's already a member you know, is this going to be a problem? Are you guys really overlapping? And usually we can work it out. Sometimes just putting people in different buildings can solve the problem, uh, but we do want to make sure that we can maintain an open and collaborative environment. And so we don't want companies to feel like they have to hide information from one another. We want them to be sharing.
0: Awesome. No, I mean, you know, I have to say I was, uh, cause this is new for us. We've gotten to a point where we're, you know, we're we're generating revenues and we've been pretty consistent. And so I've always been on the fence about, do I raise money, do I this? And I think given the fact that we, society and the markets and the governments have said, it's time, we've got to accelerate this transition. My little belly has been full of fire. I mean, I feel that momentum. And so I feel that stress. And so to be able to leave my house after a year of having my entire team all over the place, and being able to come back, you know, and, and meet new people and be in a different part of town, it's 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 exciting. I drove out to the facility two weeks ago, and I, I was in traffic, and I went, okay, this is what it's going to be like because I haven't been in traffic for over a year. But um, but it's exciting to see, you know, what's building. So let's talk about this, though. You know, um, Houston, and I got I got quizzed on this earlier today. Houston is seen as an oil and gas town. Okay. Cowboys and J.R. Ewing and, you know, Dallas and uh, big oil. And I come from this, you know, I come from this space and you pitched Houston on a Greentown Labs. And um, I I have a lot of admiration for that because the perception outside of Houston isn't always the re you know, the reality of what Houston is. And I'm just curious you know, how is that process? And do you really think Texas has a chance to, to lead what I call uh, Energy 2.0, the transition? Well,
1: you know, to be perfectly honest with you, at the very beginning uh, of this whole adventure, which started about two years ago, almost, uh, almost, yeah, two years and one month, I'd say, I was not convinced about Houston or Texas. And I have gone on in, Incredible learning journey about what the reality is versus what is popular to say in media and in public forums. And what I have found on the ground is so, so different from what it looks like when you're sitting in New England, or you might be sitting in California or any of the kind of, for lack of a better way to say it, blue states uh, that we have where talking about climate and wearing climate on your sleeve, basically as your cause is is kind of, you know, in the water that we drink in the um, air we breathe. I think that it is important for people to understand that there are a lot of people that are passionate about moving forward with the energy transition and addressing climate change that are sitting right there in Houston, kind of waiting to be activated. There's a community. There's a need for convening this community. And that, I think, has been, perhaps from my outsider's view, what is missing. And in fact, the first time that I talked to folks about a possible Greentown expansion to Houston, Texas, that was Sarah Week in 2019, I, was, um, I took a bunch of meetings that a board member of mine set up who was based in Houston, and he was trying to convince me that we should have a Houston expansion because he was trying to be an entrepreneur there, and he was finding it very tough to connect with people because they were all separated all over the city, and there was really no central gathering, and it's like, why can't we have a green town in Houston? And I'm like, Jason, are there any other entrepreneurs in Houston? Like, you know, help me understand this. So I went and um, actually the Greater Houston Partnership and Houston Exponential were also involved at this point in setting up these meetings. I had a lot of corporate partners who we've worked with for years, like Chevron and Shell, wanted to meet and talk about this and others that I hadn't met before that were more Houston specific. And all of them were saying, oh, it would be great or we need this. And, you know, I was saying, "Okay, here's what we do. Does it match what you guys need? And there was a lot of like, yes, yes, yes. But that really wasn't convincing to me. What was convincing to me was Jason, I think at about less than a week's notice during spring break, got like a hundred people, most of which were entrepreneurs, like 20 or 30 companies to show up at a bar in Edo, which is part of Houston, the kind of cool part or one of the cool parts. Um, And those entrepreneurs that I met with at that bar were telling me, Houston needs a community for entrepreneurs. We don't have one right now for this type of clean tech, climate tech, energy transition entrepreneur. It just doesn't exist. And that to me was like the catalyst. That was the moment. I was at that bar in Edo and I'm like, okay, did Jason put you up to saying this? Because like, this is almost like, I just can't even believe people are talking to me about the need for a community, but you know, from that moment, I was like, okay, well, there are entrepreneurs here that need this. How are we going to do this? So then it was a process of um, the Greater Houston Partnership organizing a trip of business leaders to come and, I'd say, kick the tires on Greentown, Boston, you know, come and, and check out our headquarters. Uh, my board got to meet with them. There was an interesting discussion about, you know, frankly, climate versus maybe more of a business purpose for doing this. but. At the end of the day, uh, you know, I really had to, in those early days, I I did kind of have to fight a bit of a battle and I'm still doing that to some extent, although it's getting easier and easier to tell people that we can't fight climate change from the coast. Like we've been trying to do that for years and years. And if you're not engaging the whole country, the U.S. doesn't move forward on this issue. And if the U.S. doesn't move forward on this issue, the world doesn't move forward on this issue. So how can we just leave the center of the country out of this? And what better place of anywhere in the United States to be leading an energy transition than the place that is considered the energy capital of the world? It just makes so much sense on so many different levels. But it's a hard sell. It was a hard sell for my board. It was a sell for my team. But... I just kept coming back to, if the energy transition is going to be happening, it needs to happen in Houston. And I heard when I met people I started coming to Houston, you know, on these trips to both do fundraising and meet the ecosystem, I just met so many people that were passionate and engaged. You know, they have passion for Houston. They have pride in the city. They understand that this energy transition is already happening. They know that the city of Houston's economy is not going to be based on oil and gas that much longer. Like It's a very open secret and they want to plan for that. And so I've just been uh, you know, bowled over not only by the welcome we've got, but also by the just very authentic interest in transitioning the city of Houston to what's next in energy maintaining that crown of energy capital of the world and moving to the future of energy versus the energy that we mostly use today. And I think that that I've been trying to translate to my New England context. And I think there's more openness to it than a year ago. And, you know, what part of what we're trying to do is build that bridge of smart people in Boston, and smart people in Houston. These are two cities that are both have industrial, you know, footprints. They they were places where you build stuff, where you build big stuff that solves big problems, and you do it for the impact reason. This is are two people that I think can understand each other. It's an engineering mentality that's shared. It's kind of a grittiness, and so you know, as you start talking to people even in boston about houston and you get through that aren't there only oil and gas companies there then you start realizing just how many connections there actually are you know people have g- gone to rice or people that have um, you know lived in houston for some time because they either grew up there or they had a job there or there was some reason there's so many connections that i uncovered once i started really talking to people about it now fast forward 2 years I'd say I have very little trouble explaining to people why Houston. It it does come up every now and again, but I I think that um, that is less of a question than it was two years ago. And to Houston's credit, I think that um, they are doing a good job, the city and uh, the business leadership are doing a good job of trying to tell that story and help people understand that actually this is not just the oil and gas capital of the world, It's actually the renewable energy capital of the world. There's like more renewable energy businesses in Houston, like anywhere else in the United States, I would assume anywhere else in the world clustered in one place. So that is a quiet part of the story that I think now is being brought to the fore. And it's really impressive, everything that's going on. Yeah, so,
0: no, I, I you to to it. no, it's OK. You don't have to convince me. I mean, after I remember during the election, obviously, well, political here, but during the election, the, the t- two candidates made, um, you know, obviously oil was on the ballot and and there was a lot of questions about fracking and all of this. And I took the opportunity to publish a USA Today article on the fact that, like, if if you think that Texas is just about oil, you just don't know the state. Because the state is so diverse. And I I was talking about this this morning, actually, you know, someone asked me a similar question about energy transition and is it possible? And I'm like, yeah, if you look around the ethnicity, the culture, the diversity, there is a lot of, I I see a lot of red and blue, but I see purple, you know, it's, it's a very diverse place. And so I think that that warrants, you know, that we're going to be, you know, moving into this new space and we'll have all this great you know, this great talent to, to tap. And I know there are a lot of obviously oil and gas professionals who want to be a part of that, you know, that transition. So it's, it's exciting. I'm so glad you guys are here. I think, you know, listening to you talk about the bar story, it's like, okay, where was I? I was, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember thinking I was counting the number of times like the media was the the words climate change were even used at Sarah week. I mean, there was a time when you just didn't say that, right. It was a sin if we talked about global warming or climate change. And now everybody I mean, we realize it. We've, you know, we've lived it obviously in, in Houston, we are, we're vulnerable. And so this is, I think this is now we're in a place where the challenge is also the exciting part because we get to fix something, right. We get to go and, and, reimagine, you know, what energy uh, will be. So from your perspective, and I, I do want to ask you this question really quick. So because it's, I find it very uh, fascinating, words matter with people. You published a blog last year called What is Climate Tech? And noted that many people see it as a buzzword and think it's synonymous with clean tech. And so why do you think, because I do hear this a lot about you know, people being so adverse to terminology like, clean energy and how does that you know how do we take some of these words and make sense of them you know when i talk to oil and gas people sometimes they have this affinity towards there's the green world and there's the clean world i kind of look at all of it and say i think we all want clean energy right so why do you think this there's this semantical debate and why does it matter you know I honestly
1: don't think it matters that much what you call it. I think for different audiences, something might resonate slightly more. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think climate tech is about reducing the amount of greenhouse gases going into the environment. And it is also about building resiliency and adapting to our climate challenged world that we have right now. Whenever you think about clean tech, I think for me, that word has been around for 15 years. It served its purpose. Uh, It was something that, you know, maybe took over from green tech or maybe in some places didn't quite take over from green tech, but clean tech, I think carries some baggage that is unnecessary. And the two big pieces of baggage are one, there was a giant kind of run on clean tech investments in 2006, 7, 8, which then had a big bust. And at that point, Silicon Valley in particular declared clean tech dead. So that is maybe something that we don't necessarily want to have associated with an industry that has so much so much opportunity. And you know we have as people that have been working in it so much pride and what's possible and how it can impact and change people's lives for the better. So there's that baggage. Then the other thing is, I think clean is a bit of a value judgment. You know, when when you're saying clean tech, then are you saying that things that are not clean tech are dirty tech? (laughs) And I'm saying that from the perspective of someone who is using clean tech for years and years and years. But when you think about like, what is the problem that we have before us? It's addressing climate change. Climate tech is a simpler way and a more focused way to say that. It has no value judgment associated with it. And so I think for the next decade, where the problem before us is climate change, we should call it what it is. It's technology that is going to address climate change. It's climate solutions technology. It's climate tech. So that's how I think about it. Awesome.
0: Okay. Okay. So from your perspective, where might we see rapid change in the next decade of decarbonization technology? Well, goodness, I know in the the, sh- the notes that you sent
1: ahead, you had offshore wind, hydrogen and EVs, and I just want to go check, check, check all of the above. Uh, I would probably add energy storage there as another just big technical challenge and need. Um, We're going to need utility-scale energy storage, and, you know, we have companies working on that that are scaling right now. So that's a really good example of, you know, a way that Greentown Labs helps to launch companies that have that long pathway to development, that are building physical things. You know, it is not an easy thing overnight to develop batteries that are as big as a semi-truck trailer. You know, that is that is not an overnight challenge so there's that you know hydrogen you know people just can't get enough of it right now it's an exciting field to be in but we got a lot to figure out uh, you know that's just the regulation piece alone on a city state local you know every level it needs to be sorted out but I think that from a Houston perspective that one is an amazing opportunity and it really could be it is kind of already the hydrogen capital of the United States in terms of just pure number of cubic feet uh, of hydrogen that uh, passed through Houston in a variety of different forms. So that's already there. The question is, how do we build it up as an energy storage resource and all the other applications we can do with hydrogen? Houston's also doing a lot in EVs, offshore wind. I think that that is, um, you know, it's interesting. I know that the wind turbine towers and or blades are actually coming from being shipped from Louisiana up to New England, where they are being installed in the waters offshore of Massachusetts. So it's interesting to see like how these two markets maybe converge around, again, people who build big things and can think big and can understand infrastructure and how to put it in the water. I think that offshore wind market is, is, you know, as we've seen with the Biden administration, that's going to go that it's a huge part of the overall solution for the electricity yeah. sector. And so we need to double down on that. And it's it's just huge from an economic perspective. When you think of not just the installation, but all of the businesses that need to be involved to get to that point, to build the different components, it's it's a whole supply chain that needs to be built in all of these different locations where we're going to have offshore wind. And so I think that one is is definitely... A area that I would continue to watch and, and be excited about. Awesome. Um,
0: okay. Last couple questions as we wrap up. So what is your why in life?
1: In life? I guess I could summarize it certainly, you know, across the board. I think we only have a, a few years on this earth. And so we should try to have an impact with that, those years that we have. I mean, I've been very blessed with a family with a lot of education, with a lot of good experience. And so I feel like I have a lot to bring to the table. And so I need to deploy that energy and experience in a way that is impactful to people beyond me. And right now that feels like, how do I impact climate change and people who will be, are being (laughs) impacted by climate change? I think that you know, it, for me, it's, it's all about impact full stop.
0: Yeah. And earlier you talked about the female role model model. So obviously you've had a, a female role model or mentor in your career. That's helped you to get to where you are today. Do you want to speak any more about that?
1: Sure. So, uh, this is my chemistry professor, organic chemistry professor, short lady, uh, hair, very short, dyed white, smoked little Capri cigarettes, swore in class, like F this, you know, all the, all the four letter words would come out um, while she was at the chalkboard. Every student loved her. She was the person that just finally said to me like, oh, you're kind of good at this chemistry thing. And I used to sit in her office and like do extra homework problems because I was that kind of student. And, you know, we just developed a, a great relationship and I just admired her. Authenticity and her willingness to. She was also, you know, just a, a fantastic role model. Had been through some tragedy in her life, and I was just inspired by her. So she kind of took me under her wing. I did a summer of research with her, and then she got me into a summer research program at Argonne National Laboratory, which was very prestigious. Uh, that's in Illinois, just outside of Chicago, and that really set my trajectory towards a PhD in chemistry which if I hadn't had that helping hand and that person to look up to and you know, that authentic role model, I don't think I, I would have ever thought of even doing that. So it's, uh, it's very important to have those folks along your path in your life. Awesome.
0: And then last, I always like to ask this, what advice do you have for this next generation wanting to get into climate tech or sustainability in terms of what you think uh, these careers will look like in the future and any advice you have for women now who are looking to get into these career fields. I think there are going
1: to be so many opportunities to be engaged in the climate fight in the next 10 years. You will almost have to try not to be because this is not just a technical problem. It is, as you've demonstrated, Katie, it's a people problem. It's a government problem. It's a finance problem. It's a business problem. And so there are opportunities in all of those different disciplines and fields to engage in addressing climate change. So I'd say that you can bring almost any background to this work. I mean, I would be looking for organizations that put front and center. These are our science-based climate goals uh, that put front and center We're thinking about our workforce in ways that allows us to be diverse, inclusive, and we think about equity. I would be looking for places that are impact oriented and understand that their employees want to have an impact. Because the wonderful thing about this generation is, you know, and I would say that's both millennials, you know, Gen Z, or whatever we call the next one after that there's a, there's a hunger to have an impact that I don't know that we had in previous generations. And there's, there's an impatience to have an impact. And, you know, the onus is on us who are in leadership positions now to harness that. And so, you know, I'd say like, Unless you're working for an app, a company that builds apps to get your lunch a little faster, like there's almost no way you're going to be able to avoid getting into climate in some way, shape or form. But there are certainly some good ways you can suss out a company that's going to be ahead of the curve.
0: Right. It's been amazing to have you on our podcast. And I can't wait for the day when we can, because we've only, we've only had these conversations virtually. Uh, I can't wait for you to come to Houston and, you know, be a part of the community. And we can, um, we can, we, we don't have to fist bump or whatever it is, those elbow bumps right anymore. We'll have, uh, we'll be gone with, you know, the done with the pandemic. I think the tailwind is right in front of us. Growth is, is here. And I can't agree with you more about the fact that there's so much opportunity ahead of, uh, ahead of us. And ahead of us for women and female founders and ahead of us from a, you know, from a perspective, you know, in Houston. So thank you for making the pitch to Houston. Thank you for having the courage to, to find, you know, the way to make this happen. And we can't wait to, to have you in Houston in person. So I can't wait either. It'll be a wonderful day when we can throw all those face masks out the window and never have to wear them again. I can't wait for that <laughs> Yes. Great. Thanks so much to Dr. Emily Reichert with Greentown Labs. This is the Voices of Energy.